Hi, I'm Andy Psarianos. Hi, I'm Robin Potter. Hi, I'm Adam Gifford. This is the School of School Podcast. Are you a math teacher looking for CPD to strengthen your skills? Math No Problem has a variety of courses to suit your needs. From textbook implementation to the essentials of teaching math mastery, visit mathsnoproblem.com today to learn more. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the School of School podcast. We've got Tim Oates with us. Very exciting. So, Tim, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Andy, and, and thanks so much for the invitation to talk today. So, yeah, I'm Tim Oates. I'm Group Director of uh, Assessment, Research and Development at Cambridge University Press and Assessment. Um, we're a big non-teaching department of Cambridge University. Um, I run a research group of around about uh, 40 people, and um, we work in over 140 countries around the world. Um, providing assessment services, learning services, and we look at educational reform as well. Um, I particularly enjoy looking at, at different education systems. I've done that for years. Um, really thinking about uh, deeply about how different systems perform and drawing insights from those differences to improve education around the world. Tim, we're, we're here with Adam and Robin here today, and we're going to talk about functions, number, and verbal problems. Seeing the maths and things. Okay, what does that mean and what is this all about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a careful title because um, people don't necessarily see the maths and things. The world is, is full of sense perceptions, isn't it? Colour and shape and movement. Well, where's the maths in that? Uh, it's pretty bewildering. Maths is fascinating because it's a deeper structure. It's a structure within and beneath the surface of things. Um, it exists in terms of relationships. Of course, we can find fascinating geometric patterns in the eyes of flies. But, but when we look at things like the ocean, where, where's, where's the pattern in the turbulence? Where's, where's the pattern in that? Where's, where, the, where, where are the mathematical relationships between the things that we see around us, gases, solids? I mean, it's amazing that we have developed this language which apprehends laws, deep structures in things. That, that, that's been a remarkable human attainment. You're not born with an understanding of the kind of mathematics which we now use to understand the world deeply. You have to acquire it. You have to work at it. Some of the things we know, we can look at two oranges and know they're two oranges. Other things... Um, the issue of, say, for example, parabola and, and the relationship between velocity and distance in an object affected by gravity, that takes a long time to get hold of. Um, and we have to teach that. Quadratics, not obvious. You have to learn it. But once you, once you understand it, you can see that it applies to the real world. It helps you solve real things it's uh i mean we're all in awe i'm in awe all the time and and you know when you start thinking that way when you start thinking of the world in a mathematical sense you 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 very quickly recognize well i mean it's a it's almost a philosophy of mathematics is what we're discussing here because you 
you know, we don't even really know. I don't think we really understand. Like, is, is mathematics a language that we wrote, that we invented? Or is it something we observed? Is it just that, is it just, you know, the nature of things and we're just recording it? I don't know that we even really have an answer for that. Um, when, when I was young, I, I read a, a couple of things which really opened my eyes. So one of them was, I, I just became interested in, in watching migrating swans. Why do they fly in a V? Why do Canada geese fly the way they do? Well, why do they do it? Turns out it's maths. The formation that they fly in, if they make a navigation error, it minimizes that error and makes it easier for them to get back onto course. And of course, we've sorted out how they navigate. It's complicated. But the maths that they've adopted helps. Likewise, pigeons eating in fields. Why do they cluster the way they do? And there's a mathematical uh, reason for that. It's, it's really, really efficient in terms of clearing the grain and the seeds in the field. That's when you begin to know that there are mathematical principles underneath the surface appearance of things, things that are remarkably persistent. That's right. And, and that, you know, even things that are really difficult to understand. And Marcus de Sotoy, who from Cambridge, speaks a lot about this, actually. And, you know, the, the, the fact that, um, that pi keeps showing up in, in all these places where there's no obvious circle. And somewhere in there lurking is a circle, but we don't really know where it is. But, but it keeps popping up, and especially in statistics and probability. And, um, you know, like you say, why, why do bees make their honeycombs and hexagons? I mean, what a curious question, right? Well, it turns out that that's the, that's the most efficient uh, tessellation you can do, right? So it uses the least amount of, of wax. Now, you know, that's a fascinating thing. So there's maths everywhere you look in nature. Uh, in the universe in general. Um, do you think we teach enough of that in schools? Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. Do we teach enough of that? We could. We, we could have application and the wonders of the outside world as a kind of a thing that we go to every so often to try to keep kids interested. Yeah, you could do it more often, Tim, because I, I've had both my kids over the years say to me, I don't understand I'm never going to need this again. And usually they're talking about maths. I, I'm never going to use this again. What, why do I need to learn this? So, you know, maybe if we pre did present it more often, as in it, it's in everything, there's maths, you know, everywhere. Uh, maybe they could get more excited about it. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th I think what we need to do is, is to do what Japanese teachers do brilliantly, which is that they move between these things and the abstract representations and the language of mathematics continuously. Not, okay, for the last few weeks we've been doing this. And by the way, there's this amazing thing that, I, uh, that, that you can observe in the outside world that's, you know, and presenting it in a, in a, just as a stimulus and sort of an un unrelated to the, the maths. No, no, no. What you have to do is to move between these things and the abstract representation of mathematics continually. Because then it, is, it, is, it encourages seeing the deep structure in the world and the, the meaningfulness and the power of mathematics. There was a great incident that happened outside the gates of a school in Kent where somebody uh, had been teaching a particular program called Cognitive Acceleration in Science Education. And it was in science. It, it helped kids to really accelerate their understanding of mathematics. And as, as um, 
Philip Adie was leaving the school, a child came up to him and said, I want, I want to talk about Case. So Philip said, oh, okay. And the child said, I, I hate Case. I hate it. And, 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 the, um, and Philip said, well, what's the problem? And so the child said, it, it makes me think about science all the time. <laughs> and and uh, when, when Philip began to talk to this kid, he realised that, boy, it was really working. This kid was beginning to really think, okay, about, he kind of perceived it as intrusive thoughts. But what we know from the research is if you encourage a child, if a child begins to think about something outside contact time, their, their attainment in the subject really begins to accelerate. And, and, and that's what I mean by this issue of functions, number, and verbal problems, seeing the mass in things. It, it has not just to be an exciting lesson, it has to shift the way you think. Mm. It has to shift mm. the way you see the world. In Singapore, they actually state that the te- I can't remember exact, the exact wording in the national curriculum, but the, the purpose for teaching mathematics is to improve someone's intellectual competence. You know, so for them, I mean, they, they go as far as stating that like we don't actually teach. Obviously, we want them to know all the things that we're teaching them, but you know, the the ultimate goal is for them to be able to make better logical decisions in their lives, right? And you know, as a, as a contributor, so let's say, you know, for us, we publish textbooks. Where, how does that apply? How do we get that into the real world? Well, you know, uh, I can think of an example. Imagine that, you know, what we're teaching is ratio and proportion. And we could just create some convoluted, you know, uh, very mechanical question around ratio and proportion and present it to them that way. But why not take the opportunity to, let's say, use a recipe for example, to teach ratio and proportion. Because now all of a sudden you can go so much deeper into the understanding of how the world works. Because you can you can ask them a very simple question which will get their mind spinning. And it can, not everyone, some of them will just ignore the question because maybe they're not quite ready for it. But others will start pondering on things. So a, a recent example that I can think of is, of a word problem was, it was, a, it was a pizza dough recipe. And it was like, okay, here's a recipe, something like, here's a recipe for making four circular nine-inch pizza doughs, right? Pizza bases. Now you want to make three. Now all the measures are given in different, so some are given in, in mass, some are given in, in uh, volume, right? So you've got to do the calculation, even though they're different. But, what, but some of them are given in time. So the amount of time that the dough needs to rise. So do you also need to perform that calculation for that? If it's just mechanical, you're just going to do the same process for all the numbers, right? Regardless of what the measures are, but it doesn't apply to all the measures. The rising time is the same because you've now separated them into three pieces instead of four pieces, and you're going to put them on the counter to rise. But the rising time stays the same. Why doesn't the rising time change? And things like that. And he's under understanding these structures of mathematics and how the universe actually works. Those are great opportunities. Now, if you ask that as a test question, a lot of people say that's a really unfair test question. I disagree. I think that's a great assessment question. But I don't know. What do you think of that? Oh, I think rich questions which actually push understanding as well as illustrating, being a good carrier of the concept, illustrating the concept, and encouraging that iteration between the abstract expression of mathematics and the mathematical structure inherent in the real situation are just great. And it's well worth undertaking research on which are really good questions, both in, in to, and which are good problems. We looked at that uh, in respect of science. Robin Miller has looked at that in terms of science. And what he's found is that there are some questions which are very revealing of structure 
and are worthwhile using year after year after year and being incorporated alongside other questions which elaborate the idea um, and having a battery of, of examples and questions which, which then it, it's, you're not just relying on one context to encourage kids to understand the deeper structure. You can vary it and, and that helps with the understanding of all of the children in the group. Uh, fractions is a case in point. Again, very good studies of how Japanese teachers use real examples, different vessels full of liquid, uh, boxes with uh, uh, sand, and so on, um, to produce, um, to, sorry, to present the abstract expression of the relationships in fractions through uh, practical, real-world examples which really embed the understanding. Uh, and build up the understanding. I love things that become, can become elaborated. So an example is, well, you have, there's a well. It is, it is this kind of depth. You, you know, you give all the information. This is the speed. This is, this is the rate at which something will fall. You know, how do you, now, now the question becomes quite important. How do you know when it will hit the bottom? So, of course, what the students do is just, they just look at it, they calculate the distance, they look at the distance, they look at the, the rate, the, the acceleration, and they say, oh, well, it hits the bottom then. And then you say, but that's not the question. The question is, how do you know when it hits the bottom? Because you only know it hits the bottom when you hear it. So you then got the speed of sound to take into the equation. Whoa, now it's a really interesting question. So, absolutely, Andy. I mean, you can ch the point is, it, it is not arbitrary how you choose these things. You choose them carefully. You choose them carefully because they are an excellent vehicle for carrying knowledge of the mathematical structure. They're not so opaque that you can't understand the deep mathematical structure. You know, that wouldn't work. They have to be highly illustrative of the deeper mathematical structure. And they have to be age-appropriate. But you can actually push kids' understanding far more than people realise. I, I did this in respect, I'm afraid, again, it's a science example. This is the one that immediately comes to mind. I did this in respect of oxidation. So um, there were kids who were being shown that you can, things can explode if they're, if they're a fine powder. You know, it's, it's very exciting for for yeah. primary school kids. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely. Know, you, can, you can blow the lid off a tin. Explosions. Yeah, yeah, yeah explosion. Too, yeah. yeah, wow, wow. How, how, how's that possible? You know, because it's a powder. So how's that possible? Uh, it's just custard powder. And, and, and indeed, you know, the demonstration was done and then and there was a bit of discussion and then I talked to the kids. They, as you say, Robin, they, they were excited by it, but they hadn't, the questioning hadn't revealed what was actually happening which was combustion. And for, the, for, the, 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 for combustion, there has to be a fuel, there has to be heat, there has to be oxygen. You, know, you can immediately start to, to ask some questions which build up complex understandings of the process of oxidation. You know, why doesn't just a pile of custard powder combust as opposed to when it's finally distributed in the air? Because um, you've got the same, you've got the fuel and you've got the heat, you know, but it's, there isn't enough oxygen available to it until you distribute it. Now, what I found is that if you, if you push the questions with very young children, they can develop very complex ideas. But you have to know what question it is, which practical example you're going to use, or real-world example. And it has to relentlessly, I mean, a bit relentlessly, drive towards the mathematical structure. And I think you're, the, question, the, the, kind of, 
the kind of question that you've just talked about, the kind of example, you could easily get sort of distracted, couldn't you, by the by by just surface features of the issue of, of pizza dough. You have to make sure it constantly drives at the underlying mathematical structure. You highlighted here was the, the verbal problems. What role do verbal problems play in seeing the maths and things? Because I think a lot of people think mathematics... When I say a lot of people, I'm not talking about educators. I think mostly educators understand. But you know, when you talk to parents or people who are not have not come through um, any kind of formal training on how to teach or why you teach or anything like that, they would think of mathematics as you know, call it sums, which I know is not the right word, but that's what they think, right? Why are verbal problems important? Yeah, I mean, verbal problems are are important because they present the complexity of the context in which we find the mathematical structures. The most obvious example for parents would be family debt, for example. You know, that presents as a very complex problem to families, and often families make poor decisions about incurring debt. Um, And we've had big shocks recently about, you know, in terms of what's been happening in the global economy, which has had impacts on interest rates, which have, have really taken families by surprise. Well, maths is at the heart of that. Issues of growth in the economy, uh, wage, uh, wage price relationships. It, it's only when, when we we think about these more complex settings, that adults experience, that I think we can really hook on to this a, a, a discourse whereby they can understand the importance of mathematical education in schools. But it's it's seeing the maths in things. Um, and knowing that if you approach certain things using mathematical techniques and mathematical understanding, you can take actions which are good for you, good for society, and good for the economy. That's where I would immediately start bridging between the immediate experience of of parents and and the realities of what their children need to learn at a at a at a pretty early age. I think it strikes me too, that that's something that as schools, it's really important that we foster that attitude because I think there is still a, an attitude that mathematics is just, or at least it's not responding to the world mathematically. It's just about finding correct answers. In some people's view, like, like parents or, 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 or possibly people outside of school, and it strikes me that the importance of what's being talked about here, there's such rich conversation to be had in terms of responding mathematically to the world and the creativity and the the artistic nature of it and that it's a language in itself. And I think that, that for me, it's what comes across loud and clear is the importance that, that the subject itself, we need to make sure that it's seen in that way too, to everyone. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And let, let's just look at a very simple thing, a seemingly simple thing. I think, Andy, in the past, you and I have taught about talked about the teaching of negative numbers and the fact that an awful lot of materials and textbooks teach negative numbers through the temperature scale. That is not negative numbers. And it it gives rise to a misconception amongst children. Um, The late Richard Dunn said that you need to teach negative numbers, not as the movement that way and that way. That way is positive, that way is negative, with zero being the line in the middle you need to teach it as the absence of something. Now, just going back to family finances, we talk about a hole of debt, don't we? You know, a big hole of debt opening up. Well, that's exactly how Richard Dunn would teach negative numbers. He would say, imagine a house in which, in the front, you've got a pile. You've got a pile which is one, a pile which is twice as big, which is two, a pile which is three times as big, of earth, which is three. 
Well, in the back, you've got a hole, which is one, a hole twice as big, which is two, and a hole three times as big, which is three. Now, that's an appropriate way to teach or, or give bridge between a mathematical problem, a, a real-world instance, rather, and a mathematical problem and the concept. And it's conceptually correct. You know, minus one is the absence of something. It's not just to the left of something. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, don't get me started on the number line, but um, it, it, it's, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that it's understanding that numbers have different types of representations and that just, you know, there's this idea of cardinal numbers, there's this idea of nominal numbers, there's this idea of like other manifestations through measurement and ordinal numbers and all these kinds of things. And sometimes we just take the easy way out and we just think, what's the easiest real world type example I can come up with with a negative number? Let me use that. But not really challenging, what is the concept that I'm trying to teach here? That's why that's why it's dangerous to let teachers write all their own content. I mean, I don't, you know, this is not me taking a stab at teachers, but um, people who who make it their life's business to do this sort of thing spend an awful lot of time thinking and researching and looking at the impact of doing it one way versus another. Um, it takes a lot of time and it's, it takes a lot of expertise, and uh, you can't leave some of those things to chance because you can get misconceptions in really early on that are hard to unpick later on, you know, if you do it wrong. That's why this topic is so important, Andy. I, I, I couldn't summarize the, the way in which we should approach this better than you have just done. You know, it, it is very easy to choose a concept which is of immediate appeal, but can actually give rise to a misconception in the child's mind or in a group of children's mind. We know from Singapore maths, we know from the instances of verbal problems, contexts, in, in the textbooks, that there is very thorough selection of particular instances to encourage application and to reveal the mathematical structure, and careful variation in those against a particular concept. It, it is something that has to be done systematically and in the light of good evidence, and a lot of that evidence is from good practice. Yeah, and, and, and it's from good practice, but it's also from looking at what the long-term effect is of doing something, you know, and saying, you know, okay, well, we did it this way. What happened, you know, how do you judge whether or not your year three lesson is effective? Maybe it's by what happens when those children go into key stage three. I had a great example of this. I was talking with um, some teachers um, where we were doing some international comparisons, um, and it was some Japanese teachers and some Chinese teachers. And um, one, one particular question came up, which was, uh, there is a pile of sand. Where do you have to cut it to get one third of the pile of sand? And um, I said, that's, that, the way that's expressed is very interesting and very challenging. And I asked, asked the teacher, and, and I said, well, when, when did you first use, it, use that as an example? He said, no, well, I've always used it. We've been using it for 500 years. It, it, it goes back to the first mathematical textbooks in China. Why wouldn't you use it? You see, yeah. this, is, this is very different from, from the kind of approach that we teach, which is, oh, you've got to be innovative, you've always got to use new stuff, don't use the same stuff over and over. It's a completely different approach. Why do you use it? Because it works because it's been carefully chosen, because it reveals a mathematical structure, because you can elaborate it to make it more complicated if, you're, if the kids have already grasped it. You can ask the additional question 
okay, that's when it hit the ground at the bottom of the well. But but how do you know that it actually, uh, you know, how, how can you actually know that it, that it hit the bottom, you know, and incorporate the speed of sound into it? You can elaborate these things. That's right. And otherwise, you end up with answers like, um, you know, how many children traveled in that car? It'd be three and one third children. No, there's no such thing as a third of a child, right? Like, you know, yeah. or, but that's what yeah, happens. Precisely. Right? And, and I'm sure people who yeah. write exam papers find those types of answers all the time, you know, because it's, it's, that's, you know, that's an example of a well-structured question. You can't put a third of a child in a car. So that's not the answer. So how many children actually went in a car? Was it four or three? Yeah, I came across this teacher who's, who, who was using a particular set of examples in, in a primary school in terms of mathematics and science. And, and she said, oh, these are so boring. I've used these for years. I think I'm going to use something different. And I said, well, why do you want to use something different? Do they work? She said, oh, yeah, they work brilliantly. So just yeah. carry on using them. <laughs> the only person who's bored is you. Just don't let your boredom show. That's right. Carry on. You know, they're brilliant <laughs> questions. I'm still working on the one third of a child in the car. That's that's <laughs> very disturbing. <laughs> but I think what we just described is something about pedagogy. It's something about how you create your own materials as a teacher. It's how you judge between materials. It's what people who produce materials should be concerned with. And we see this in the best, best and highest quality textbooks from Hong Kong, from Shanghai, from uh, Singapore. Tim, one final question before we let you go. It seems to me, I, I might be wrong, it seems to me that there's a, there's a large emphasis. If you look at the mathematics journey that we push most people down, there's, there's, a, there's a, a more of an emphasis on calculus versus statistics and probability. Do you think we should have more statistics and probability in mathematics? If you look at where the world is going in the future, I think the push towards calculus has always been an engineering view of the world. But is there, is there an argument for putting more statistics and probability back into mathematics? That's a very general question, I know, but I'd just be interested in knowing what you think. Oh, you might think it's a general question, but there's quite a specific thing going on in England about this. Um, okay, I'm going to reveal quite something that may sound quite traditional, but... We introduced um, different routes in our advanced level qualifications. In other words, 16 to 18 prior to university. Um, Round about the 1970s, we began to introduce a statistics route. And and, and before it, there had been a strong mechanics route. Boy, you should have seen the kids migrate to statistics. Actually, that created quite a problem in our system. Uh, If you set them up in opposition one with another, then you can get ready migration I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's about setting them up in opposition. I think you can have a kind of a different flavour, but if you completely remove mechanics from 16 to 18, or, or, and you introduce it as, well, you can do statistics or mechanics, then, then I think actually you've got a problem. If you look at, say, the German system, then you can major a bit more in statistics, but hell, you can't escape the mechanics. Um, likewise, if you're really committed to mechanics... You still need to do some statistics. I, I think that's about the right sort of balance. I do like an upper advanced system where people can follow their preferences and their aspirations. I think that's a time in education when we can begin to really follow people's aspirations and preferences because that means they're enjoying themselves and they really probably learn more. That's a good thing for them. But, but I think it sounds terrible, Andy. I think it's a question of balance. Um, we don't want one to the exclusion of the other. Tim, always a pleasure speaking with you. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Andy. It's been a real pleasure today. Thank you very much. Thank you.